Who takes note? God takes note. Who predestines? God predestines. Who justifies? Who calls? Who glorifies? Bottom line is this, God starts and God finishes. It's the work of God from start to finish. So what are you worried about? That's basically what's being asked here. We have to remember that the work of our salvation, the work of our redemption, is the work of God from stem to stern. So if you are a believer today, that means that God took note of you. He predestined you. He called you. He justified you. And He will one day glorify you. And He has guaranteed that how? By giving us His very own Son. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? You see the logic of Paul's argument there? If he's the one who took note of you, if he's the one that predestined you, if he's the one that has called you, if he's the one that has justified you, if he is the one that has glorified you, then who can be against you? And you say, but how do I know he's done that? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also? If he's already given us the very best, the very best that he has, his very own son, how will he deny us all those other things that we need? Now that's a whole new perspective, isn't it? That's a whole new way of looking at life. And that's why Jesus is saying, why are you worried about all these other things? God has already guaranteed that he's going to take care of you because he's already given you as a believer the very best that he has. He's given you the gift of his very own son. Jesus is saying, think about that. That's the first thing. Think about that. Jesus says also, don't focus on the problem, but look at the whole of life. He's also saying, look at the nature of life. Go back now to Matthew for just a moment. He says, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, or about your body, what you put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single day or add a single hour to the span of his life? Uh, the key word here is Father. Jesus is saying, look at the nature of life and remember that the God who created the heavens and the earth is your what? He is your Father. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap. They don't gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. He's the creator of the birds. He's the creator of the animals. And God provides for them. You are his child. How will he not care for you? Think about that. You're, you're talking about the Father who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. There is nothing that God needs that he cannot provide for himself, and there's nothing that you need that God cannot supply 
for you. Your heavenly Father knows that you need these things. He knows your needs before you ask, and he knows your ignorance in asking. Keep your finger there in Matthew and turn over to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 16 for just a moment. One of my favorite stories in the New Testament is about the Apostle Paul. And he was in Philippi. He was traveling with his companion Silas. And I'll just give you the, um, the condensed version of what was happening there. Um, Philippi was a, um, a city that had been settled primarily by former soldiers of the Roman army. And the Philippians were very proud of their Roman heritage. They're very proud of that. Uh, Paul and Silas arrived there in Philippi, and there was not a Jewish congregation. It was one of the few places where they went. There was no Jewish congregation at all. Uh, as a matter of fact, um, the only place where they could find people to whom they could preach the gospel initially was down by the river. And normally they went into the synagogues, and that was their point of contact. But in Philippi, there was none of that. Uh, this was a really Gentile city, and it only took about three men in order to form a synagogue. So we know that there weren't even really about three Jewish men there that were interested in starting a synagogue in that city. So Paul and Silas go into this town. Uh, it's somewhat hostile territory, and they're going down to the river, and they're preaching on a daily basis. And all of a sudden, they are accosted one day by a girl who the text says was possessed of a demon. Now, actually, something is lost in the translation here because in the original Greek, it says that the girl was possessed of the spirit of Pythona, which means the spirit of the python or the spirit of the snake. And the ancients would have understood that to mean that she was possessed of the spirit of the god Apollo. Apollo was one of the ancient deities who was associated with the snake or the python. Some stories say that he killed a great python, say that he transformed himself into a python. At any rate, Luke tells us that this girl was demon-possessed. The people thought she was possessed of the demon or the, the spirit of the god Apollo. And she had this ability to foretell the future. And she was a slave. And she made a great deal of money for her owners by this demonic gift. Now, Paul and Silas are making their way down to the river to preach the gospel to the people who have gathered there, mostly women, incidentally. And the story goes that this girl kept following them through the city, accosting them, and shouting out at the top of her lungs, these men are servants of the Most High God, and they are telling you the way to be saved. Now, what's curious about that is that everything she was saying was absolutely true. They were servants of the Most High God. They had come to show people the way to be saved. But let's be honest, if you're looking for a character witness, a demon-possessed girl is probably not what you're hoping for. And so we're told after so many days of this, Paul, having enough of it, turned around and he rebuked the spirit and it came out of the girl. Good news for her. Bad news for her owners. Because now they can't make money off of her. And so what do they do? They go to the magistrates and file a charge or a complaint against Paul and Silas. And here's the charge. They say, these men are Jews. They are from off. Quite literally, that's what they're saying. 
And they have come here advocating customs that are not lawful for us Romans to practice. Now, that wasn't true. As a matter of fact, they didn't know it, but Paul was a Roman citizen. But that didn't matter. And so Paul and Silas are arrested, and they're thrown into jail. And the situation looks very bleak. In those days, it wasn't a fair trial and all that sort of thing. If you were causing difficulty, if you were causing trouble, particularly in a Roman province, chances are you're going to lose your life. So Paul and Silas are locked away in this terrible prison. And they are placed in fetters. They are chained up. And they do not know what the future is going to hold. They do not know what's going to happen to them on the morrow. Now here's the question. If you are in that kind of situation, falsely accused, the whole community is against you, there's no one to advocate for you, chances are you're going to be executed in the morning. What are you doing in that jail cell that night? Praying. How many of you are anxious? <laughs> How many of you are worried? How many of you are fretting? How many of you are wondering, where was that insurance policy? <laughs> That's how we feel, isn't it? I want you to take a look at what Paul and his companion were doing. Acts chapter 16, verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying, as you would expect, but they were not just praying. They were singing hymns to God. Now, when you sing a hymn... You are singing a hymn to praise the Lord. When in our music, God is glorified. That's what music is designed to do. They say that those who sing pray twice. So Paul wasn't just praying for deliverance. Paul is singing praise of God. His focus is not on his plight, on his circumstances. His focus is on who? His focus is on God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly, there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately, all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? I call this the most direct question in all of Scripture. He saw in the life of those men who were facing difficult circumstances, he saw something. He saw a hope, a confidence that transcended their situation. Let me ask you a question. When you are facing difficulty, does the world see something in you, a hope that transcends your circumstances? Well, he did. And that's why he came in, and he realized what had happened here. And the first thing that he asked is, what must I do to be saved? And what does Paul say? Yeah, you know, he just doesn't say, you need to join the Episcopal Church. <laughs> he, he, he just never says, you need to go get confirmed. You know, buddy, you better get your act together. You better straighten yourself out. He says what? He says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. 
you and your whole household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him. And he took them that same hour and night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and his whole family. And he brought them out into the house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. He was not focusing, Paul and Silas, that is, they were not focusing on their situation. They were focusing on the God who is the author and the finisher of all things. And the God who is not bound by human circumstance. Think about it, Jesus says. Paul knew that God was perfectly capable of delivering him. But Paul also knew that God was perfectly capable of having not let him get into that situation in the first place. So he didn't fret about it. Did you ever think about that? So oftentimes in our lives, we're asking God for deliverance, which is a perfectly legitimate thing to do. But we have to realize that God could have prevented us from getting into the situation in the first place, couldn't he? So the question we need to ask ourselves is, God, what are you doing in the midst of this? And what would you do with me in the midst of this? We have to take a look at the nature of life and what God may be doing in the midst of our circumstances. Third thing we need to look at is the Lord's generosity. Verses 31 through 32. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added unto you. How many of you remember the old Baptist hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness? How does it go? Well, there's a stanza in it that goes like this. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. I want you to notice that that text says, all I have needed, thy hand has provided. It doesn't say all that I have wanted. God will always provide for your needs. He does not promise to provide for our wants. Now, for some of us, there's confusion between the two. We oftentimes put our wants in terms of needs. If you've ever had a teenage daughter, you know how true this is. They always say, I need this. Well, I have one right now that's telling me I need a phone. She's not even, she's a preteen. She's 12 years old, but that's her big thing. I need a phone. And I keep saying, no, you want a phone. No, I need a phone. No, you want a phone. She said, Daddy, you don't understand. I said, I understand. I live without a phone for most of my life. My kids can't even imagine a phone that was attached to the wall with a cord and a rotary dial. They get a... 
What God promises is that He will provide for our needs. And He will do that generously. Jesus says, think about that. What we have to discern is what we really need as opposed to what we really want. And as that great caller from the prayer book says, God knows our needs before our asking. And He knows our ignorance in asking. Fourth thing Jesus says to do is focus on His kingdom. He says, but seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. We are so focused on our own needs, our own wants, that we miss what really matters in life. Somebody once said, and it sounds rather trite and simplistic, but there is a sense in which it's rather profound. They said, if God exists, nothing else matters. And if God doesn't exist, nothing matters. There's some truth in that there, isn't there? If God doesn't exist, what is it all about? You might as well, like the Epicureans and the Stoics, eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow you're going to die. Life's a beach. On the other hand, if God does exist, and He is your Heavenly Father, and He's already given you the very best that He has to give, and He's already taken note of you, He's already called you, He's already justified you, He's going to glorify you, and He's guaranteed you that by giving you His very own Son, and He has adopted you as His child, and by virtue of your adoption you cannot ever be rejected, and He is the God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and He is the Alpha and the Omega, and the beginning and the end. What are you worried about? That's the question. That's what Jesus wants us to understand, and that's what He's saying Think about that. And we don't, do we? It's worth our time, it's worth our energy to consider these things. One of the great characters in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress was a man known as the Muckrake. He was a man who used a rake to rake the ground in search of a morsel of food. He was so obsessed with raking the ground for just a morsel of food that in the story he fails to see an angel who is standing just above him offering him a crown of eternal life. A man who could not look, who could look no way but downward with the muckrake in his hands who would neither look up nor regard the crown that he was being offered. We are so much like that character, aren't we? We so focus on the things of this world, so focus on the circumstances that we miss the God who is the author of the circumstances and the one who is capable, purely capable, of transcending them. Now, if you were coming here today hoping that I was going to be able to give you the magic answer for worry, There is no magic answer. There is no magic pill. It's all a matter of perspective. 
It's all a matter of how we think through the issues of life. It's all a matter of developing the mind of Christ. So that we do not think as fretful human beings, but we think as Jesus did. You know, one of the things that struck people about Jesus was his serenity. That's a wonderful word, isn't it? Serenity. Because that's what we long for. We want to be, we want to have serenity. We want to be serene in life. And Jesus had that. Nothing seemed to fluster him. Oh, he got mad injustice from now and then. There's no doubt when he saw the money changers in there buying and selling salvation in the temple, he got mad about that and drove them out with a whip. But nothing seemed to fluster Jesus. He never seemed to fret or worry or be anxious. Remember that story where the disciples were in the boat and, and the great storm erupted and, and, and the boat was in danger of being swamped? I, I don't know if you ever picture that in your mind's eye, but I picture the disciples in there bailing furiously. Somebody's working the pumps and nothing's happened. And somebody says, where's Jesus? We need some help here. And somebody said, he's taking a nap. And, and Peter says, well, this is no time for a nap. Go get him. And James goes back there and he shakes him up. He says, do you not care that we perish? And what does Jesus do? We're told he goes to the front of the boat and he rebukes the wind and the waves. When you imagine that, how, how do you imagine it? I think most people imagine Jesus because we have this sort of weak, you know, sort of effeminate view of Jesus, sort of coming to the, peace, be still. I think that's the image that we get. It says he rebuked the wind and the waves. I'll tell you what I imagine. I imagine a man who's in the midst of a great nap, and somebody woke him up, and he's P.O.'d. I mean, that's the only way to describe it. And he goes to the front of the boat, and he says, stop it. Settle down. And the wind and the waves Stop their raging. Let me tell you, God can do that in your life. He is perfectly capable of doing that in your life. But Jesus was not flustered or concerned about the circumstances. He had everything well in hand. And no matter what you're facing in your life today, I don't care if it's cancer, I don't care if it's financial difficulty. The one who calmed the waves on the Sea of Galilee is capable of calming the storm in your life today. And he has things, regardless of how it may look from a human perspective. Think it through. He has taken note of you. He has called you. He has justified you. He will glorify you. He has it well in hand. So let not your hearts be troubled. When we come back together again next week, we're going to take a look at Matthew chapter 7. Uh, this is um, a turning point in the Sermon on the Mount. It's an important turning point in the Sermon on the Mount because Jesus wants us to be able to see ourselves clearly, but he also wants us to be able to see others clearly as well. Let's close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we are anxious people, and storms do erupt in our lives, and part of it, Lord, is that we, we do. We tend to focus on the circumstances. We tend to focus on just the moment. But your Son, Jesus, reminds us that you are our Father, that you care for us, that you note even this, the fall of the sparrow from the sky. You number the hair on our heads. 
And we are worth so much more than the lilies of the field, and you clothe them. So, Lord, grant us the grace to begin to think with the mind of Christ. Bring to our remembrance in times of difficulty, when we are filled with anxiety and fear, bring to our remembrance that one who rebuked the wind and the waves, who delivered the disciples. And even in the face of that greatest storm, death, help us to remember that you are the one who has gone there and stopped the raging of that sea as well. Speak to our souls. Speak to our hearts this day, Lord, anxious people that we are. Peace be still. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Next week, we're going to take a look at seeing clearly now, and we're going to show you how you can begin to develop the mind of Christ. So in the midst of life storms, you can think as Jesus thought. Okay, see you in church.